This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitiv. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Views Room. I'm Anthony Curry from Reuters Breaking Views, and with me is my co-host Jennifer Sabre. Morning, Jen. Hello. Later in the show, our Hong Kong team will be stirring in the trade dispute to a financial taste test between Starbucks and China's Luckin Coffee. We kick off, though, with some worrying news for companies in the United States. It increasingly looks like your regulators are acting in ever more random ways. Uh, with me, I have Rob Siren and, of course, Jen in the studio. And on the line from uh, San Francisco is Gina Chon. Welcome to you all. Um, Rob, I'm going to start with you. Um, let's start with so Qualcomm is, is one of the big companies that's been uh, caught in the net of, of this, this randomness of regulators this week. Just tell us quickly what happened and why. So Qualcomm's a company, they make chips which connect uh, phones to networks. So if you, if you want to speak or if you want to transmit data, you use either Qualcomm chip or um, the companies that produce the chip use Qualcomm patents. Right. And what a judge said was um, Qualcomm had a policy basically of uh, if you want our chips, you have to license our IP. And if you want to license our IP, you have to pay for the um, on the entire value of the phone, not just the modem for the chips. In other words, you know, Apple would have to pay royalties basically on the entire device, not right. just the Qualcomm chip. Okay. And the, the judge said you can't do that, basically. So basically, it's anti-competitive, antitrust issues, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And this has sent the stock down, what, 11%, I think, in early trading on Wednesday when, when we were looking at this. Um, that's about $10, 11000000000 billion. So mm-hmm. um, this basically upends Qualcomm's business model. Yeah, because they make most of their profits from licensing out the IP. And the, re- the reason they can do that is because they have such a dominant position making these chips that companies feel they have to license... Um, they have to get these chips if they want their phones to be useful. And to do that, they have to license Qualcomm's patents. Right. Now, what, why is the, the – Jen, turn to you on this. What, why is the um, Trump administration pushing this case? Well, that's a funny thing. This is actually an Obama-era case. So when this was brought forward, it was the FTC. And they were like, "This is there's something wrong here. But now, under the Trump administration, the FTC had to proceed with this case anyway. And Why? The, well, because, and this is probably, Rob can probably wade in here and explain this a little better. When Donald Trump came into office, the entire FTC turned over, which is unusual, right. but just because of various terms and whatnot. So what happened was the um, chair of the FTC, Joseph Simons, had to recuse himself from this uh, case because he had worked with Qualcomm in the past. So now we have a deadlocked FTC. So there's... Two Democrats, two Republicans. Two Democrats, two One Republican who's recused himself. Right. So they couldn't stop the case. But that, I mean, but 
the Trump administration did try. Yes. So then, exactly. So then you have the Department of Justice that tried to wade into this matter and say, basically, we would prefer you to have hearings because we're scared that these penalties are going to hurt Qualcomm. Now, in the background of all of this is President Donald Trump, who has basically said, Qualcomm is like a national champion, mm-hmm. and um, and this has a lot to do with Huawei. And I can bring my colleague Gina Chan in, who can discuss this as well. Um, so you have all these competing interests, and that is generally not how things work. Mm. So Gina, let's bring in you on this. So that the Huawei element to this is is what exactly? Well, there's this. Uh race for uh, 5G um, next generation network in terms of who is going to win that race. Is it going to be the United States or China? And China, in a lot of ways, through Huawei, is already far ahead in terms of uh, technology and also uh, where it has a presence. Huawei is much more global in terms of being in Africa and other uh, emerging markets. So that's presented real problem for the Trump administration and has led to this crackdown on Huawei, which was already under pressure because it's seen as a national security threat because of possibly feeding information uh, to the Chinese government. So, I mean, this this just makes it even more bizarre because if we stick on the 5G theme, we've got another couple of companies that have been whacked by um, weird uh, regulatory decisions or processes this week, and that is T-Mobile US and Sprint, uh, which are planning to merge. Now, Jen, you've been looking at this as well. This is the case where within basically 24 hours, we've got two different agencies of the US government issuing two different opinions on this deal. Yeah, and and they've been basically whipsawed around. So effectively, the Federal Communications Commission and the Department of Justice have to approve this deal. Earlier this week, the head of the FCC, Ajit Pai, came out and said, I love this deal. I'm going to recommend it to the committee. Um, Then (laughs) Reuters reported that the Department of Justice, the antitrust division, the staff in the antitrust division are voting to block the deal. Now, that decision ultimately is in the hands of their boss, Makem Delarame, but it shows you all the the weird machinations and twists and turns that typically don't happen yeah. in these types of regulatory right. reviews. So, Gina, let's bring you in again on this, since I know you're now in San Francisco, but you, you, you were for a while our DC correspondent and still well plugged in there. As Jen said, this this is not how these agencies used to work or are meant to work, correct? Yeah, usually you see a lot of uh, coordination behind the scenes. Uh, the couple of times um, in the past few years when the Sprint T-Mobile deal came up, you saw the DOJ and the FCC pretty much in lockstep with the uh, heads of each divisions um, coordinating their comments and sounding pretty similar in terms of why uh, they didn't have a favorable opinion of the deal, um, mainly because of anti-competitive concerns. And you are definitely not seeing uh, that kind of coordination under the Trump administration, which really has uh, businesses in a scramble in terms of trying to figure out how to play all this. And the, and the 5G angle, and this, as I mentioned earlier, there isn't a, a big 5G angle, obviously, to, to telephone companies or mobile companies merging. But just spell it out for us, Jen. What, what is it that, that, that where that, how this fits into Okay, it? so 
just in the larger landscape, um, Sprint is the number four telecom provider and uh, T-Mobile is number three. So if they combine, they basically knock a player out of the marketplace. Um, AT&T and Verizon are the two largest. So they are making a gamut. They said, listen, our merger is going to be great for this country because we are going to invest in building a 5G network. And you know, that is something that has caught President Donald Trump's ears. He, this is a big initiative of his. Right. He wants to try and beat China, as Gina said earlier, in the build out of this network. And so there's there's been speculation, OK, is this 5G initiative going to outweigh any sort of competitive concerns? Right. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you have a number four uh, telecom player, which is Sprint, it's just not doing very well. In fact, it's kind of limping along. So the question is, even if they don't combine, it's entirely possible that Sprint is just going to become weaker and weaker and weaker, and that Americans may only have three choices anyway. Right. Um, Now, of course, we're looking at at, at two issues here involving three companies uh, this week. But um, the sense I'm getting from the way you guys are talking about this is that these are not the only deals, I mean, that, that have been thrown up here. Rob, what else have you have you seen out there that, that gives you pause? Okay, so, so AT&T Time Warner would be the other one that comes to mind. So um, AT&T wanted to buy Time Warner. Um, it's been a long saga. Um, but the, the feds came out against it basically arguing that even though it was a vertical deal, so normally deals with um, antitrust has centered over the past decade basically on stopping companies from providing, uh, buying co- uh, competitors if the resulting company is going to be dominant. In this case, it was one company buying another company in a different industry, basically, right. a different part of the industry. And the government made a case against that. And it was very odd because normally they don't pursue vertical integration. And the other reason is because Donald Trump, of course, um, he's been, uh, CNN is owned by Time Warner. Right. And so the argument, he doesn't like CNN. So the argument was, okay, are they against this deal because simply because they don't like uh, Time Warner, and they don't want you know they don't yeah, want. So whether true or not, that that became a, an issue in in people's minds when when on the outside looking at this deal, thinking uh, is the Department of Justice doing this to appease Trump? Yeah, and there's the example. question of politicization too. For instance, when um, Sprint and T-Mobile, um, it came out that T-Mobile was spending uh, that the CEO was spending a lot of nights at Trump hotels. You know, and the question yeah. is, are they, you know, is it all becoming a question of how do you appease Trump? Right. And of course, then the flip side of that, the, the, the deal they went after is the one they didn't go after in a sort of similar space, Jen. Yeah. So that was the um, Walt Disney's deal to buy um, pieces of Rupert Murdoch's empire uh, and Fox. And it, again, they waved this through fairly quickly. Um, now, Walt Disney and Fox came to the table with, with concessions. They right. had, Like, for example, Walt Disney had to sell the regional sports networks. But, I mean, given the saga over AT&T and Time Warner, you would think that it would have at least least been a little more drawn out. Mm. Um, But this thing was waved through. And, you know, again, to kind of bring politics back into this, um, Fox News is one of Donald Trump's favorite networks. And, you know, you have to stop and think, well, you know, was this waved through quickly because – he really likes Fox News. Mm. And so, I mean, again, we I, I don't know if that's the case or not, and I don't want to say that it is, but it's always lingering in the back of people's minds. Yeah, so it, become, it becomes an issue, even if it's not what's determining the cause right. of things. So, right, right. Uh, so, Gina, um, you know, obviously, uh, being over in Silicon Valley now, you, you see how much of this is playing out 
in the way that companies may be discussing what they do about, you know, let's throw the trade war in there we've got now. We've discussed that briefly with Huawei. You've got um, all this stuff coming out of D.C. How do you see, if any, how do you see um, companies over in San Francisco and even with some of your old contacts from your D.C. days reacting to all of this mess that seems to be coming out of D.C. regulators? Yeah, I think uh, they're unsure what to think of it all and trying to proceed as cautiously as possible. I mean, even on the Huawei order that recently came out from the administration that basically requires their suppliers to uh, attain special licenses to sell products to them. So that ranges from Qualcomm, uh, which we've been discussing, uh, Alphabet's Google and a whole host of other companies. Uh, it really cut Huawei off from the supplier base. Then just a few days after that, um, the uh, Department of Commerce issued a bit of a reprieve saying that they would actually give um, Huawei and their suppliers um, some time to figure out alternate arrangements so that it wouldn't be too disruptive. So then you saw Google going back and saying for now they would keep supplying uh, Huawei with updates for the Android operating service and, and other issues. So it's been really a back and forth um, saga for a lot of them, and they're really unsure of what to expect next. So this, I suppose, this, this takes up executive time. It takes up uh, their thought process on strategy. So the, the planning, you know, whether it's six months, whether it's a year, whether it's even five years, if any of them do that much, that's got to be just impossible, or not impossible necessarily, but it just throws a huge spanner in their works, doesn't it? Yeah, on a whole host of levels. I mean, we've seen um, capital expenditures uh, go down recently, um, even though that was something that was expected to increase because there, in Donald Trump's recent tax cut plan, there were incentives to increase expenditures on that front. But companies just don't really know what to do. And uh, the possibility of an intensifying trade war also could put a damper on the economy. So there's a lot of cautiousness in the air. OK, let's leave it there. Thanks, guys, for coming on. And now we'll hand over to our friends in Asia. Hi, everyone. I'm Chris Bedore. I'm here in Hong Kong chatting with Pete Sweeney about coffee and trade wars. Pete, you've been covering Luckin Coffee, which pitches itself as the alternative to Starbucks in China. Uh, it listed last week and it closed up 20% on its first day. What has people so excited about this chain? Well, you already said it. Uh, you know, Starbucks is what has people excited about this chain. Um, you know, it's always wise if you're a Chinese company doing something to, to establish and you're planning on list in New York, like Luckin did, to, to give yourself an American comparable. Most Americans recognize Starbucks. In fact, they're very different companies um, and their models are very different. But the fact of the matter remains that, like, Starbucks, you know, has been in China since 1999. There has never been a serious Chinese competitor for Starbucks. It's this kind of anomaly. You know, McDonald's, uh, KFC, Yum China car. Every, almost everybody has a Chinese, except for Starbucks. It's this weird thing. And people have just been waiting for a local homegrown company to pop up and take them on. And so despite all the differences in the way that it does business, Luckin has positioned itself as like, okay, we're going to come take on Starbucks. We're going to open stores super fast. I mean, these guys just got started a couple years ago from nothing. Um, now they've got like 2,300 stores, I think. They plan to have over 4,000 by the end of the year, which would put them ahead of Starbucks, in fact. And that's been kind of what they've hung themselves on. 
Um, they've also raced to public markets, so they're not making any money yet. In fact, they're losing money because um, they throw up these stores and have these big promotions. Um, but even so, you know, they've been great at raising money. They went to New York. They did well again. I think uh, this pop was 20% up, but at one point it was up like 53%. Um, that was made it a $6 billion company for a moment at the top of the day. So, I mean, they certainly can, can pat themselves on the back for understanding the markets, understanding venture capitalists very well, and pitching themselves properly. Well, so I have to ask, if, if Starbucks is sort of in the background of any discussion of Luckin, and not far in the background, um, we're obviously in the middle of a very quickly escalating trade war between China and the United States. Starbucks is a very large American company in China. How much do concerns about trade war, and specifically if Beijing were to do something that affects Starbucks, how much does that play into the story of Luckin? Yeah, well, I mean, Starbucks is a major American brand. It's 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 obviously like McDonald's, um, you know, or, or Ford. You know, you think of these iconic singles. Starbucks, certainly in China, is something that is vulnerable or seen that way. So the idea being that, you know, the, the, again, Luckin's timing is quite good. I mean, ordinarily, you would not think that Starbucks, you know, which has this rock-solid business plan, has done extremely well in China, you know, would be vulnerable. But, of course, you know, really the only thing that could get in Starbucks' way in a serious way would be, you know, for the Chinese government to start, you know, organize spontaneous boycotts or put them under severe regulatory pressure, start arresting executives, any number of these nasty things. So, you know, a lot of people see that. I mean, where I kind of step off of this is the idea that people will go to Luckin instead of Starbucks, and they're not exactly substitutable. And I think that's a big point of, of market misunderstanding. What do you mean by that? Can you go into a little bit more detail? Well, I mean, so most of the people who are buying Luckin shares have never been in a Luckin. Um, and you have to understand a critical difference. Like one of the reasons that Starbucks is successful and has done so well is because of this, this its real estate placement. So like in the in its home market in Europe, like Starbucks – you know, has set up this third space where you can go with your laptop or a friend or a business contact. You sit down in the leather comfy chairs, you have your little coffee, and you sit there and chat and listen to the hipster music in the background, right? In China and on most of the, the top cities, Starbucks is absolutely carpeted. Like in Shanghai, there are intersections where there are two Starbucks at the intersection cat a corner from each other. Um, and they, some of them they own, some of them they lease. They've signed these defensive leases with, with like, you know, their landlords saying, okay, we're going to rent from you, and therefore you can't rent to our competitors. Um, they have locked down huge points of prime portions of prime real estate in the top cities um, where people walk by, and that's just difficult to compete with. And Luckin has made do. Is, Luckin is basically delivery and takeout. And they've they've gone with this. They've, they've got a lot of stores, but they don't compare. A Luckin store at its best has like two tables, bar tables, high stools. There's no comfy chairs. It's stuck next to a subway, or it's like off in some corner up in a in a uh, in a skyscraper, um, and it's just doing deliveries. These are really thin operations, right? And they're just ped slinging coffee um, as fast as they can. Um, the the smart part of the strategy is they've got an app, right? So you can only pay through the app. Um, you kind of have to download it and configure it, and, and that makes it a little bit stickier. Um, you know, and they heavily subsidize um, the cups, so it's cheaper. Um, so that has helped them grow, you know, generate a lot of sales. And there's no question there's been, there's been user take-up. The question is, you know, are they going to be able to sustain this strategy? But, like, nobody's going to go from a comfy Starbucks and then go stand. At, you would never meet a business contact in a luck-in. You know, you would order it delivered to someplace nicer <laughs> and drink it there. Well, so just to take that a step further, I mean, do you think, end of the day, are they going to take market share from Starbucks? Should, should If I'm an investor in Starbucks or if I was in Starbucks headquarters right now, 
should I be concerned about Luckin? Well, you got a lot of things to be concerned about if you're Starbucks right now. There's a trade war. There's slowing, con- you know, the slowing economy in China. Um, you know, there's more competition in it. Yeah, the the point that Luckin has identified is is that there's a lot of room for growth in this market potentially in smaller cities where coffee drinking is less. Overall, Chinese people don't drink that much coffee on a per capita basis compared to other markets. So um, there's this 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 case to exploit, you know, but, but are these users the people who would have drank Starbucks? I don't think so. I mean, like the people who order Luckin delivery might as, are probably the same sort of people who order like delivery coffee from McDonald's or, or, or Yum Brands, like a KFC, which also is developing their own coffee delivery operation. Um, so no, I don't think they're going to really take share. They might find this new market of new coffee drinkers that just want something cheap and slapped on the table and don't really care about the hipster music and the, and the comfy chairs. Um, so that's possible. But then it comes down to the pricing, you know, and this company has listed this extremely expensive. It's not profitable yet. It's kind of difficult to value it. But like on a per store basis, it's more expensive on a price to sales ratio. It's, it's, it's quite pricey, um, which reflects a lot of optimism for a company, you know, that is not this isn't like a, a software startup. They're selling coffee. You know, at, at the end of the day, it's a coffee delivery company. They're going to have to somehow justify these incredible margins. I can't quite see it there yet, but clearly the market does. Yes, the market does, uh, even even without for now, <laughs> even without jazz CDs and comfy leather chairs. Um, Pete, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. My pleasure, Chris. Hi, thanks, Chris and Pete, and thanks also to Gina and Rob for coming on the show. And we extend our gratitude, as always, to our producers Freddie Joyner, Ross Shoulder, and Sydney Barbera. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes. And please do share your opinions about our show. Join us again next week for another edition. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.